Well, good morning. My name is Chad Puckett. I'm one of the pastors here, and we get to do this together on Daylight Savings and uh, for many people, the beginning of spring break. I'm thankful that you're here. I would really love the opportunity to meet you, to, to sit down, have a cup of coffee, whatever, and, and just hear a little bit more about who you are. We're, we're not here just to pack a room, clearly. We're not here just to try to pull off the, the coolest service or any of this. This is... Uh, about walking with people and pointing people to Jesus. So I would love that opportunity. If, if it'd be something that uh, would serve you, it would be a blessing to me as well. If you've been with us, you know that we're in a, a long walk through Mark. And we've been reading the book of Mark together and trying to just see who is this Jesus beyond just the cultural trappings and what the world says about Jesus, what does the Bible say about Jesus? And so we're sitting in this book of Mark and we're just trying to see who Jesus is. What we've seen, one of the things that we've seen through it is is Jesus is king. He claims to be king. The Bible again and again makes this audacious claim that Jesus is king and that he, if he's king, there's a kingdom and that changes everything. Everything. That is a big claim. We've seen it throughout all of Mark, and it really is enormous. It is a dividing line. We either believe that Jesus is king or we don't worship him. Words matter. The text matters, and how we walk in this text matters. That's why we've been really careful with Mark chapter 13. It is a chapter that speaks around judgment. It speaks around really difficult things that are hard to hear just in general and then culturally hard to hear because we live in an age in a place in the world that it's just not okay to talk about judgment. And so we wanted to be really careful and we wanted to highlight just what the text is saying. But judgment is also one of those things in which gets everybody's attention. It's like, oh, we're going to talk about end times. We're going to talk about all these things. And this isn't new to us. This has been happening uh, throughout history. People are looking to the end times. You could go all the way back to the second century and start seeing where people were like, here it is. Jesus is coming back. Everybody, here is the day. You have that in the third century. You have named people in each one of these centuries. By the fourth century you have a man named Donatus who gathered all these people in Jerusalem and was like God's only going to take 144,000 people into heaven and now is the time line up by the fifth century you have Rome which has been attacked it's just been completely attacked and, and overrun and people are like this is the end this has to be the end by the time you get to the 900s and let's be more specific 999. That might sound familiar for some of you of a certain age that remember Y2K and the freak out that went around with that. It's like, oh no, my email is not going to work. It's all going to reset and everything. People were screaming the same things in 999. This is the end. Everything's, everything is ending. Interestingly, it happened at the 1100. It happened in 1200. And for some dumb reason, in 1455, people were like, this is the end, just like it was Y2K again. 
all those things. Like people freak out throughout history and, and think that this is the moment that has been spoken of over and over again. And almost every war in history has had that effect on people, including what we see happening today. I've spent way too long over the past week just deep diving every crazy conspiracy website and every website I could about like how what's happening in Ukraine is Bible prophecy that is the end of it. People look for this. What we want to see is we want to actually go back to the text and just say, what has Jesus said and who is he? And so today we're just, we're going to try to make this as simple as possible. I didn't do a good job of that in the first service, but I'm going to try better in this one to make this as simple as possible. We just want to say like, God, what is being said what does it have to do with us? And so I, I need you to pray for me for sure. And I want to pray for us that we would not just go through another religious thing, but we'd actually stop and see God move. Father, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for just your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and your beauty. Thank you that just as we sang that whatever tomorrow brings, you are in control because you are king. You're a good father. And so help us, God. Help us in this moment to think about these things and to, to be changed by your word, living and active, by your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Before we dive directly into this text, I, I just want to say uh, that throughout history, People have disagreed. Godly men and women ha have come to uh, different conclusions around Mark 13. And good, solid interpretations of what this looks like. Is it speaking to the end in the end times or is it speaking to judgment specifically on Jerusalem in AD 70? But every Orthodox Christian throughout history agrees on one thing specifically, that Jesus Christ, King risen, will come again. And let me just give you a couple of verses around this uh, just to, to kind of set us in motion before we look at specifically Mark 13 today. Acts chapter 1 says this. And Acts comes directly after these gospel narratives, this, this gospel account of Jesus' life. At the end of each of these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus has been crucified, he's dead, he's been buried, and Jesus miraculously has been raised again. Acts picks up directly after that moment. Acts picks up after that, 40 days after we read this, in chapter 1 of Acts, it says, And when he had said these things, the he here is important, it, he, Jesus, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of, the, out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? See, this, this is one of those moments in scripture where you're like, uh, that is a no-duh question right there. It comes up again and again. Why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus was taken up from you into heaven. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
So the first book after this, these gospels, the first chapter of these uh, speaks to it. There are other chapters throughout the New Testament that speak to Jesus coming again. There are other chapters and verses that we could go to. I just wanna go to one more real fast, which is Revelation 22, the very last chapter of this entire Bible. We could go to the beginning of Revelation. We could go to 1 Thessalonians. We could go to other places as well. But we'll just go to the end and see what it says because three times in the last 15 verses of Revelation, we hear, I am coming soon. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so I, I just want to be really clear where we've stood on this over the last few weeks, uh, that I believe Jesus is coming again gloriously and redemptively. And I believe that Mark 13 is specifically addressing the judgment that will fall on Jerusalem. And I believe that for a couple of reasons. I think it's the most natural and consistent way to interpret this particular text Mark 13. I think it's the, the, the simplest explanation of what we see in it. It's the reading that makes the most sense of all the elements of the context of what we actually see in the words and the grammar in every aspect of it. But I think the most important thing that we, we get and how it leads me there is that the reading of this being 80-70 in Jerusalem facing judgment is because... It validates the prophecy of Jesus and leads us to say, he prophesied this. His word is true. He is who he says he is. It leads us to faith. It leads us to wonder. It leads us to believe in who this Jesus is. But I, I just want to be really clear. Again, like I said, there, there are, are differing views on this, and we want to hold that graciously. We want to hold those spaces of disagreement with open hands and walk graciously with one another through these things. So if, if that freaks you out a little bit, I mean, I would love to talk to you more about it. I'd love to just sit down and have that conversation. Not to twist any arms, but just, just to have that conversation. So with that in mind, let's dive into Mark 13 and read this in context. In context. Mark 13 Verse 32 says this. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Only the father. There's a lot happening right there, grammatically and otherwise. There's a lot happening. But again, the but tells us it's not just coming out of nowhere. It's connected to what has come before and what has come before. In chapter 12, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. Jesus literally goes into the temple and, and is teaching about this very God right here in the temple. And then we get into 13 and it says that Jesus leaves the temple again. Just to remind you, the presence of God has left the temple. 
They get outside the building and the disciples turn around and say, look at these great buildings. And they keep walking, right? They're, they can see the Temple Mount out here. And they keep walking. They go down the valley. They cross to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says to them, he's like, man, those buildings are pretty special. But, but they're coming down. Because they were never the point. They were never the center of all of this. And judgment is coming upon those. And he says several things. Watch for it. Be awake. Be aware. But what is he doing? He's standing out there with these people who have come into Jerusalem. They've had a hero's welcome. Hosanna has come. All these different things. They've had this hero's welcome into the city. They're following their king with this messianic hope. And they're, they're now in the city in front of the temple. And they are going to step into this. And here is the moment isn't it? And Jesus zigs when they expect him to zag. He says it's coming down. And now you cut to the end of chapter 13. He's given all these warnings of what this is going to look like when the temple falls. And we pick it up in 32. And this is the context of what he says. But concerning that day, in that hour, there's been no change of what he's talking about. There's been, no, there's been no contextual change anyway of what he's talking about. They're still standing right in front of the temple. He says, concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels. And then he ups the ante even more. Not, not even the son. Only the father knows that. See, there are things that we'd like to know, right? There are things that the disciples would have liked to know. There are all sorts of things that are like, man, I've got questions. I've got questions upon questions. And they don't have all the questions answered. They don't have everything answered that they'd like to know, but they have enough to follow after Jesus. That's important. And so contextually, they're standing right there. Jesus is making a very clear and direct statement that can be taken as this. This temple is coming down, and no one knows when. Only the Father knows. But there's so many, like we just... We skip past, it's so easy for us to skip past the clear reading of this and be like, he's talking about the great day. He's talking about when he's coming back. But contextually, that is not what's happening. Friends, when we just start endlessly hunting to put our finger on the day, on the calendar, on the year of when Jesus is returning to earth and the second coming and the great judgment, when we're just endlessly doing it, what we're doing is basically putting on this religious horoscope. A spiritual tea leaves that we're just trying to like see the future and all of these things. Jesus himself tells us no one knows. There will be no more signs. This is the sign. This is the sign. The birth pains. This is the warning. The warning for Jerusalem, particularly these people in this place, that this generation would be there for it. There are no other signs. Here is the clear takeaway. The angels do not know. Jesus himself does not know. And he insists on leaving the issue with God. So if that's what's going on, let's, let's zero back in on this and start thinking about what does this have to do with us? 
What does this have to do with us? Mark 13, 33 says this. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly find you asleep. Jesus' warning to them is a restating of what's already come. I just want to throw out to you a couple of things that have already come up in chapter 13. These are the verbs, the imperatives that are given to us on what to do. For those paying attention to this warning, this is what Jesus is telling you to do. He starts with, see, see that no one leads you astray. And then he goes, don't be alarmed. Early on in chapter 13, he says, be on guard. He says, bear witness to who he is. Don't be anxious. And then it turns, right? It turns around 14. He says, when you see these things actually happening, you're, you're on guard, you're paying attention, you're looking for these things to happen. But when you see them, it's time to run. He says, flee. Pray, pray, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Don't believe the false prophets. And then he says a second time, he says, but be on guard. He gives the parable. He says, learn, learn from the fig tree. Learn what, what's happening with the, that parable of the fig tree. And now we get right here in this passage, he says, be on guard. This is a third time in chapter 13 that he says, be on guard, to pay attention to these types of things. And he gives color to, to what it means to be on guard. He says, he, be on guard by keeping awake. Keep awake. That there's an alertness to being a guard, a watching and a scanning that goes with, with guarding something. There's, a, there's a, a stand at attention. There's a, a paying attention to what's going on. But at its most basic, it's like, you gotta stay awake. At its absolute most basic, the, the lowest bar to clear as a guard is stay awake. And that's what he says. Notice it does not say, sit down and figure out the exact date and time. Read every newspaper and crazy website, read, read every single thing and figure out what is happening in the news that tells you what it is. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to concern yourself with every kind of crazy thing out there. He simply says, be on guard, stay awake. Stay awake. There's a specific context to this. As we, as we read all of these verbs, as we think about what Jesus is calling us to, I just want you to recognize that at the end of chapter 12, Jesus goes into the temple to teach. And now he's outside the temple. He's been teaching in there. Now he's outside and he's pointing them right back to this. He has said, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And then he leaves the temple because it was never 
was never their hope. It was always God. It's always been God. It always will be God. But we tend to put our hope in other things. We put our hope in temples. We hope, put our hope in buildings. We put our hope in stuff, whatever that might be in your life. We put our hope in our bank account or our 401k account. We put our hope in having the right connections or the right jobs. We put our hope in all sorts of things and then fall asleep. We get really comfortable. Get really just comfortable with all of it. But I want you to see how this passage ends. He's given this, this picture. There's a master of the house and he's leaving. The servants are still there and they need to pay attention. They need to keep on guard and stay awake. Notice how it ends. Verse 37. What I say to you, the, who's the you in this? The you are the disciples who are there, the followers who would hear him Who's the you in this? It's those people who were right there in that moment with him in that what I say to you, I say to all. Colon. That's the cool period with another period on top of it. Tells you to pause and then it says, hey, remember what's coming, what has come before here in all of this. And then it restates uh, this important thing, stay awake. Stay awake. And you say, but wait, you still haven't told me what it has to do with us. Hey, spoiler alert, it has everything to do with you. Because AD 70 happened. What Jesus was prophesying about the temple coming down happened. And it was horrible. And the warning he gives says, it's but birth pains of this greater judgment. It should get our attention and we should be warned, all of us, that there is another judgment to come and that there is no other because it's true, it validates Jesus and who he says he is. Validates every bit of it. And so I want to spend the, the last few moments of our time together just kind of trying to identify areas of where we kind of fall asleep and how we could stay awake. And I started this kind of generally, and it was like, it more and more, it just kept kind of invading my heart of like, no, it's not all of us in general. It's just like name the areas in which you fall asleep, Chad. So uh, maybe not all of these land with you, but I think enough will that uh, are, are just ripped from my journal and what this looks like. What are some of the ways in which we're asleep, and what are some of the ways in which we can fight to be awake and on guard? I have four of those for you, and I want to unpack those real quickly. The first place I noticed my own heart drifting and falling asleep, it's where I recognize that my, my heart is not in tune. It's just, it's just there, but not on guard, is that I start noticing misplaced priorities. I start noticing it in my time. I notice these misplaced priorities in, in like, stuff. I can even have misplaced priorities around family. Like, see, the, the idea of misplaced priorities is not that all of those priorities are bad. 
It might not be bad. We can still have misplaced priorities. And the way to fight that is to return and to, to guard the faith that has been given you. And here's, here's one way that is expressed. 2 Timothy chapter 1 says this. Paul is writing this to Timothy. He says, follow the pattern of, of the sound words that you have heard from me. I think Paul is still saying that to us today. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This faith that by grace has been given to you. Don't just treat it casually, guard it. Guard it. Pay attention to it. Pray that the Holy Spirit would fan that into flame. Ask God to work, but guard it. Be on alert for these things and take what little faith you may have or what big faith you may have, take all of it and say, this is precious and it's not going anywhere. I'm gonna do everything. And recognize the spots of your own heart, your own soul, which might be an indicator where you're falling asleep. It's growing in being people who are thinking about what we believe. It's growing in being people who are thinking about the claims of Christ. It's growing as people who are, are praying and saying, God, work this out in me. It's growing past just showing up in the right spot at the right time. And it's growing into saying, God, this faith has been entrusted to me. Holy Spirit work. And I just confess to you, I'm not always there. I'm not always there. I'm, I'm often, I often have other priorities that are misplaced. But I pray that God would keep me awake and help me, help me to stay awake in these things. The second thing, after misplaced priorities and, and guarding that, that faith that has been given to me, is that we, we end up, I end up, it's easier to say we, isn't it? I can, enter to, I, I can end up recognizing that I'm asleep or falling asleep with all sorts of distractions in my life. Entertaining distractions or stupid distractions, all sorts of distractions though that are, are present that I start to see at work in my life. Chasing experiences or likes or approval of other people chasing the next thing to do or the next thing to post about. But, but sometimes it isn't like as simple as like just like, you, you know the experience where you're at the theme park or whatever. I love roller coasters. I love all those things. But when you're at a theme park and you go down a roller coaster, it, you're like, man, that was awesome. Okay, to the next one as fast as we can. And I find myself doing that with my faith. where I just end up chasing after experience, after experience, after experience. And it's a real sign that I've started to fall asleep. And you know what we can do, what I do, and, and have done more than I like to admit, is I can show up and I can sing the right songs and my heart is nowhere near it. Because I'm distracted, my heart is distracted, my soul is distracted. 
And I can sing all those things. I could show up at community group. I could show up in, in other spaces that, that are truly like calling my heart. But I can be so distracted by so many other things. And I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. I'm guessing I'm not alone. And so if, if that sounds like you, I would say here is a, a very applicable thing. So what does this have to do with us? So what is, maybe you're asleep and here is an actual way of trying to fight for us. I love how Psalm 37 puts it. Psalm 37 says this, if we're going to fight these distractions, instead of being distracted, befriend faithfulness. Notice how it says it, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What a phrase, man. What a, what a phrase. I, I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep these rules. I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to sit up straight. I'm going to have no visible sin. I'm going to be a good person. And, and, and I'll know the answers to all the right Christian tests or whatever. And stuff. No, what the Bible calls us to is to befriend faithfulness. And I can almost see it on your face. Some of you that are still awake right now, I know it's spring break and it's, it, it is daylight savings and stuff. Like some of you are thinking you just used faith in the first one and now you're using faithfulness in the second one. That's kind of a cheat, isn't it, Chad? And I'm saying, no, it's not. Guard the faith entrusted to you that God has given you. Guard that, that gift of faith that you have. And pray like crazy that the Holy Spirit would keep working that in your life. But befriend faithfulness, this active living out of what has been entrusted to us. Befriend that. You know what it's like to be a friend. You know what it's like to be a friend. Go to them. Be proactive towards faithfulness. Don't let a gap grow in that friendship that you have with faithfulness. That means some disciplines. That means that we would be people who are, are growing in it. But notice it goes on. Like this passage actually goes on. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. You see, some of it is just like actually doing the things that friends do only with God. It's developing the habit of sitting down with this God. It's developing the habit of reading the words of this God. Uh, uh, developing the habits of hearing the message that he's communicating to you. Listening to this God in prayer. Not just coming and giving him your list of demands. You terrorist. We, I, I pray like a terrorist most of the time. God, these are the things I demand from you. Give them to me. Befriend faithfulness. Befriend faithfulness. Develop a habit of community. Develop a habit of communion and not just coming forward to the table of communing with the living God. 
develop a habit of Sabbath. And I, I use that word intentionally because when I put in here this idea of it, we can say rest and it has nothing to do with actually tuning our hearts to God. Develop those habits. Think deeply about befriending faithfulness. Well, if the third one is, is right in line with that. It comes almost on the heels. It was as if it was pouring out of me all the ways in which I'm falling asleep. Is that I recognize this spot in my life where I can be distracted. I can, I can be distracted by things and, and have them all. I have priorities that can be out of whack. But I also have this propensity in me to like a paralyzing laziness. And yet that would be kind of hard to see if you just had the reality TV show of my life. I'm not a person who just sits around. We're not people that just binge watch shows or, or, or just kind of are endlessly on our phones and stuff. But I can have a laziness in my soul that's hard to see from the outside. And that can be paralyzing. It's a way I start to notice in my own heart where, where I, I think I'm falling asleep and I'm not actually guarding. I'm not actually on guard in that moment. I, can, I have this in me. I can neglect my Bible reading. I can neglect prayer. I can neglect relationships that matter. I, I, can, I can be right there, and when I start to notice that uh, I'm, I'm pulling back, I have this moment in me. I, I blame it on being an only child, but I think it's more than that. I think it's my soul speaking that says, you're not on guard anymore, where I just want to be alone, and I don't want anybody bothering me. And I think that's my soul crying out of this sleepiness that leads me to a laziness in this. And so how do you fight that? If that sounds like you, how do you fight something like that where you'd rather just retreat? And the Bible talks about it. Jesus retreated. But, but my retreat when I'm not on guard is leave me alone. It isn't a stepping back so that God could recharge me. That's an important difference. How do you fight that? First Thessalonians puts it in a really important way. Instead of a paralyzing laziness, Get up and walk, and walk in a particular way. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. First Thessalonians 2, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, how do you do that? Because I, I even think about that and I'm like, man, I can't walk in a way that is worthy of God. I know all this crud inside my life. Uh, I know all this stuff that's happening in me. And, and how do I even walk in a way that is worthy of God? Well, how do we come to him in the first place? We come to him in Repentance. You want to walk in a manner worthy of God? You want your, your soul to be awake and on guard? Repent early and often. 
Return to God uh, as often as possible. Let there be no gap in where your heart has run to stopping and saying, God, you receive me. I am a sinner and I need you right now. Let there be no gap right there. Repent. Walk in humility. Humility in which people can speak into your life. This is why we walk in community together, where people can speak into your life and say, your stuff stinks. But I'm not walking away from you. I'm not walking away from you. And there are people in your life that can say, I think you're wrong on this. I think you're wrong on this. All of us need people in our life to speak those things into us, where we'd walk in repentance, we'd walk in humility. But one other way I think it is important to name is that we would walk as servants. A manner worthy of the calling of God. A manner worthy of the one, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the very form of a servant. That's more than just help us in our kids' ministry. That's having the attitude and saying, God, awaken my soul. Awaken my soul. Help me to walk these things out. Well, finally, here's the fourth and final one. It's a little bit more abstract, but I'll, I'll go with it. That we would be, like, I notice that I'm asleep when I, I start recognizing some values in my life are out of whack. I know that's abstract. I'm sorry. Let me explain it this way. I love the Olympics. You've heard me say this. We're, we're, we would watch the Olympics. I'd watch the dumbest sport that I, I'm not even sure if it's a sport. I would watch it. And if there are Americans in it, I'm like, you I'm like whipping the towel, all this stuff. It's like, I'm just hardcore into all of it. Fine. That's not bad, right? But I also can turn on the news and see what's happening in this place. And now I'm thinking about like USA, get them. That's not healthy. That's a value that's out of whack. That's a heart that's not on guard for the things of God, but that's being swept up in what's going on all around me. And how do we deal with that? And I don't know what it looks like in your life, but I bet it looks, I bet there's something there. And that our values get turned upside down. And what we think is most important is actually not all that important. And I'm I'm no longer on guard for what God has told me, but in some way, I'm just looking around at all the latest news and everything else. And so how do we turn that around? How do we stay awake and on guard? I love how Paul puts it here in Romans 13. He says this. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand and so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Skip to 14, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's a putting off and a putting on. 
There's a putting off the things in which my natural heart values, my natural heart throws out there. And there's a putting on of the character of Jesus. I can't put on his attributes, but I can put on the attitude of Jesus, the mind of Christ that is in us because of the Holy Spirit and the the way of living which thinks of others as better than yourself. Put on Christ. And when I start to walk in those, my soul comes alive. I see things with a different perspective and I start to actually walk and live. Start to see what actually has worth and what what is truly terrifying in life. And yet I also would add this, God hasn't answered all of my questions. I don't think he's answered all of your questions. I also don't think he will. But he's given you and he's given me enough to walk faithfully. To stay awake and to be on guard. How you and I live in those everyday spaces. In the moments between Sundays, it matters. It matters in huge ways. It matters for us. Uh, But... Hear this, how we read the text matters to those very same spaces. It matters how we, how we make those everyday spaces alive and awake. If Jesus, let me back up, if that temple never fell, everything would be different. But we know from history that it did. We know that the words that Jesus predicted here in 13 came true. His prophecy came true. He's trustworthy. If Jesus was still in some grave, and and believe me, people have hunted for this. This is a big one. People set out to disprove the gospels all the time. If Jesus were still in some grave, then none of this would matter. But he isn't. He's raised, and so his warnings are true for us. His his claim is true. You either believe it or you don't. And so hear this. If you are someone who would say, I am a follower of Jesus, you have a task right before you. Stay awake to keep the main thing the main thing. And to be that servant of the household as long and until the master returns. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're here and you'd say, man, I'm not even sure what all this means. The call And the judgment is is just as loud. That there is a judgment coming that is so much scarier than the birth pains. There's an eternal judgment before us. And this king loves you enough to warn you and tell you of your only hope, Jesus. And just like we read in Romans, 
Now is the time. Salvation has never been closer. Trust and believe this Jesus is who he says he is. He's trustworthy. He's given you everything you need to trust and believe 